together, and let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave to them and get their attention, uh, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. Never trust the person behind the pulpit without a Bible in your hand. So don't give me that kind of trust. <clears throat> I can't even keep announcements straight. So you want to watch out for yourself by always having a Bible in this church and uh, help yourself to one as they give it to you. And then if you don't own a Bible, of course, make that, that's a gift to you and just make a good friend of it. Two verses this morning, Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Peter writes, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of your Scripture. Thank you that we never have to turn to your Bible independent of the author, of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us the beauty and the depth and all of the glory that's found in these verses for us and speak them into our heart. Help us to understand them, Lord. Make them a part of our daily walk with you. And Lord, we pray that this morning for those that stand before you right now that haven't yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, we ask that this morning and this time of studying your word, that some revelation from you would just impact their hearts. They would recognize that you are their creator and want to be their heavenly father and want to bring them into the life that you have planned for them. And we pray, Lord, that today would be the day of their surrender to you. And that requires a work of your spirit as well. And we ask for that work in their lives too. Bless us, Lord, be active in our midst now as we continue to worship you in the study of your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter chapter 1 are two of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. But they do fit into that category that we've spoken of before where you can read something and the content is so dense that the apostles are speaking something by the Spirit of God that is in such germ form and ripe for development that you can read it and it has so much content that you look and you say, I know it has to be good. And I like the collective words that are used in the description here, but I could read it 30 times and not be able to tell you at all what in the world he's trying to communicate. 
And that's perfectly fine because sometimes the Bible is like that, and that's why Bible study is important in order to take this and kind of tear it apart and see what in the world is Peter saying to us by the Holy Spirit. And he is saying a lot. Now, one of the things that's important when we come to passages like this that are like uh, heavy content uh, verses, and the Bible is a heavy content book, the Bible is in, in the subject of God and a relationship with God, that is worthy of our greatest efforts for understanding and concentration more than anything else in life. And so there are some passages that we come to that demand kind of a greater concentration to say, all right, I, want, I need to kind of buckle down here and, and understand what's happening here because it's important to God and it's important to my life too. So there's a lot of different kinds of passages that will that are very applicational. They're very devotional in nature. They really impact our hearts in just like an obvious way. You kind of get the warm fuzzies from it, and all of that's good, not putting that down at all. And then there's other passages where God is explaining something with some kind of depth and knowing that it's only as we appreciate these truths that we will then be able to appreciate our Christian life, what's available to us, appreciate those warm, fuzzy kind of sermons because a foundation has been laid in our life as Christians that allows all of those wonderful things to happen. And these kind of passages also allow us to be able to worship the Lord in the way that we have been worshiping, to worship Him with understanding. So I like the emotional side of the Christian life. I have a very emotional relationship with the Lord. But the Bible says we're to worship God with all of our hearts, our emotion, with all of our mind, our, our intellect. The Bible is a deeply satisfying book to the mind. And, and what we think about and what are important to us that for some of us allow us then to release to the emotional. We won't release to the emotional unless we know that there's a reason intellectually for why. And so these kind of passages allow those of us who are in kind of that category helps us out a little bit. Now when Peter begins this letter, as we saw a little bit last week, he uh, was following the standard greeting in the ancient world of a letter where he, would, he identified himself as the writer of the letter, he identified who he was writing the letter to, and then a little bit of a greeting where you would kind of say, in our you know, way we write letters today, uh, hope you're doing well, I pray God's richest blessing upon you, something like that. And he spoke something in that vein. But there was a fourth characteristic of ancient letters, and that was before they got to the main body of the letter and the intent of the letter would be an expression of thanksgiving. And so that's what he comes into right now as he's thinking about all that we have to be thankful for uh, as Christians. Now, in opening, this opening of this epistle, uh, Peter's been speaking of God's grace. And God's grace is a wonderful subject. I do think that we have to be careful as Christians not to become one-dimensional related to God's grace, because I think there's a tendency on the part of many Christians to only think of grace in terms of forgiveness. 
of our sins. So when we think, boy, God is sure gracious, we immediately think of, wow, he, all of the sins that he has forgiven me of before I became a Christian and since I've become a Christian, wow, is he gracious. And that's a, a wonderful truth about the grace of God and a wonderful side of the grace of God, but it only tells half of the story because God's grace is not only revealed and expressed in his forgiveness, but it is also expressed in his giving us the power to live what's called a victorious Christian life. His grace is equally demonstrated in giving us the power to live a holy Christ-like life, a life that we would have no hope of experiencing apart from his grace. I know you're like me as a Christian. The life I live every day as a Christian, I had no, I had no hope of ever living this quality of life in and of myself. It is the grace of God that we are experiencing on a daily uh, basis. And so the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, gives us and provides us the will or the desire to live a holy life, and then he couples with that desire the power to live a godly life. So he's thought of everything. He gives us the will, the desire to live a life like Christ, and then he doesn't just leave us there. Wouldn't it be terrible if we got saved, all of our sins forgiven, and then Uh, we were forced to live the rest of our life looking at the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of Jesus and then continuing in our same miserable condition of sin and selfishness dominated by it and, and all we could do is look at his life smacking our lips and never have the hope of enjoying the holiness of his life. Or if he came into our lives and he just gave us the desire for it. We look, we see Jesus, we see the beauty of his life, and he gives us a desire for it, but then he would deny us the power to experience that beauty and and that holiness. So the Holy Spirit has thought of everything in terms of our need. He's provided us a desire to be like Christ, but then he also gives us the power uh, then to do that. When an unsaved person hears of the fact that God has saved us and forgiven us of our sins, it does something wonderful in their lives. And And each of you that are Christian in this room, especially if you become a Christian in your youth or older, you know that people reacted in a certain way when you became a Christian. And there's a lot of different reactions that people have. But one of the reactions is, among a certain kind of person, is that when they hear that God has forgiven us and saved us, it produces a hope inside of them that God would also forgive them and save them. Because so often our family members or our friends or our fellow students or our co-workers or whoever, they know who and what we are before we became a Christian, and they realize, wow, if God will forgive and save them, it looks like uh, he's not that picky. He'll forgive and save anyone, so there must be hope for me. So it provides hope, and that's a wonderful thing. But it's also true that when a person sees how God has changed our lives after we've become a Christian from what we once were and they knew us to be, 
and they recognize this man, this woman, they have different desires. And they have a different power in their life to follow those desires. And so then they will look at that grace of God and sanctifying our lives and making us holy, and then it gives them also gives them hope that God can do and will do the same thing for them as he has done for us. And so God's grace is equally and powerfully demonstrated in both forgiving us and saving us and also in changing our lives once we became saved. And we thank the Lord for that. Again, how miserable would it be to become a Christian, now have this gloriously holy Savior and All that would do is just taunt us in terms of the distance between the life that we're living and the life that Jesus lived in his carnation. But the Bible teaches and Peter teaches here that God saves and he sanctifies. Now, this great truth was under attack by the false prophets and the false teachers at the time that Peter wrote this letter. They had infiltrated the church at that time. And so this is kind of the main Um, thing that he is defending against in his letter, he will expose these false teachers and false prophets in earnest in chapter 2. But he begins even in this bit of thanksgiving to start to push back uh, what they're trying to bring into the hearts and the minds of Christians. Now, false teachers typically come in one of two categories. You have Uh, generally one of two categories. You have uh, what are known as the legalists. And the legalist is the person who will take a simple command from the Word of God, and they will then add things to it in order to make the keeping of that command more difficult. So they will make the Scriptures more demanding than they are. In their thinking, if God asks X then 3x must be three times better. Not realizing that if God wanted to say 3x, he would have said 3x. He knows how to communicate. He doesn't need any help from us to make his commands any narrower or broader than they already are. So the legalist does that. They make God's commandments and God's word more restrictive, more demanding than God makes it. And they kind of live under the banner of if you're not suffering in a relationship with God, you're not doing it right. And that's what they've been raised up to kind of make us suffer in a relationship with the Lord. A clear on the other end of the spectrum is what we would call, for lack of a better term, uh, we call liberal theologians. And they take just a simple, clear command of the Word of God, and what they do with it is just the polar opposite of the legalist. They will take that clear teaching of God's Word concerning holiness or some commandment that requires some self-discipline or self-sacrifice in order to obey it, and they'll attempt to explain away the clear meaning of the commandment. Uh, They'll say that, well, that's impossible. Nobody can really do that. And this is a book that's filled with principles and good ideas to aim at. But nobody should take it seriously in terms of their daily life. Or they'll just up and say that God, if they don't like what's in it, they'll just say, that isn't true for us today. 
and were so much more enlightened and so much more brilliant uh, than at the time of the writing of uh, God inspiring of the scriptures that we now know even more than God. And so they explain away the simple, clear teaching of God's word. And always that liberal kind of uh, theological liberal, they tackle things and do things in that way because they want to accommodate some sin in their lives, uh, even if it means disobeying God. So they want to go to heaven, but they don't want to obey God's commandment. They want eternal life, but they don't want an abundant life right now. And, and so they want that kind of Christian veneer on their life. They want the blessings of the Christian life, but they want to ignore what they want to ignore uh, as well. And that's kind of the group that Peter's dealing with in, in this, uh, this letter and was behind the, the false doctrine that Peter is going to address. And because of their influence, Peter wants his readers, including us, to realize that as Christians, we have everything we need in order to live a godly life. And he lays out four very, very simple truths, very deep truths, powerful truths, real truths in this, in this passage that I want us to notice this morning. And he begins by informing us, verse 3, we have all the power in order to live a godly life. He, he puts it this way, as his divine power, that's God's divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, God has given us as Christians everything that's required to live a godly life. He not only has the power to save us, but he also provides us with the power to live a holy life. Again, when the Holy Spirit came into our life, he brings a will to do, a desire to do God's will, and then the power to do God's will. For those of you who take notes, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 is where that comes from. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he provides the want to, and then he provides the how to of the Christian life, the desire and the power, which is what we would expect of someone named the Holy uh, Spirit. Now, we do not live the Christian life in our own power for the simple reason it can't be done. If you've ever tried to live the Christian life, all right, God save me. I'm a self-made man. I'm a disciplined man. I'm a talented man. I've risen to the top in every environment I've ever been in life, and I'll ra rise to the top of this Christian life and this church as well. We'll just meet with you two weeks from now, a month from now, three months from now, and we'll know where you live. Romans chapter 7. <laughs> the good that I will to do, I don't do, and... And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. No one can live this Christian life in our own strength. It is impossible. And yet there's a perception related to Christianity that somehow God does all of the heavy lifting and the saving. He gets us saved, and then now he leaves us on our own. We roll up our sleeves, and then through human effort, we try and obey all of the commandments that are written uh, in in the book, and, and, uh, and if we attempt to do it that way, then we're going to be a miserable uh, failure. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, 
and you're afraid of becoming a Christian because you have messed up everything you've ever tried in your life. And you're afraid to become a Christian because you know you're going to mess that up as well and you're going to do it in front of everybody. Don't let that stop you. You won't do it. God's, God handles Christianity in a completely different way than everything else that's in the world. Not just every other religion in the world, everything else in the whole wide world. This is when we become born again by putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the greatest miracle in the world happens, and there is no greater miracle than to have God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit come into our lives and make our lives his home. That's what happens when we become Christians. And he brings with him, as we've said, a desire to live a holy life and the power uh, to do it, the power that God supplies. And the Bible says the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now inside of us. So he not only has the power to save us, but he has the power uh, to provide us with the power to live holy lives. Now, God never gives us a commandment in his word except that he gives us also the power to obey that commandment. Coupled with every commandment to holy living in this book is the power to then obey that commandment. Period. But we will never discover that power until we attempt to obey the command. And when we do, we'll experience it unfailingly. I think about this related to one of the great incidents in Jesus' public ministry and his three and a half years of public ministry while on the earth. He walked into a synagogue in the city of Capernaum up in the northern, the Galilee area of uh, Israel. And this was kind of his adopted home. Most of his, he was headquartered out of Capernaum during his public ministry. And he walks into the synagogue, and the religious leaders of the day had set up a trap for him in that synagogue in that they had put a man in there who had a withered hand. It was a Sabbath day. And the trap was to see if Jesus would heal the man of his deformity on the Sabbath day. And that if Jesus did that, it would be in violation not of the law of Moses, but of their interpretation of the law of Moses. They know two things about Jesus that even the enemies of Jesus knew. Number one, he had the power to heal that man who was born with that deformity. And they knew they did not have that power. They knew Jesus was greater than them. They also knew that when Jesus walked into that room, he would discover that man. They knew, and Jesus apparently this was a characteristic of his life, was to know that any room that he walked into, he became aware of the greatest need in the room and then proceeded to meet that need. And that's a wonderful thing to think about every time you have the assembling of the saints together like we're doing today, where he takes and is active in a room like this by his Holy Spirit 
He knows who is the person with the greatest need in their life in this room, and he ministers to that need. And then once that need is met, then that there's a new greatest need in the room, and so forth and so forth, and he moves and he moves and he moves. This is why I teach so long. I'm buying him time. I know this is a needy room. So Jesus knows the whole thing that's going on, and he orders the man to stand up. And he gives him a commandment right out in front of everybody. Just be like he did it right here in front of everybody in the synagogue. He said, stretch out your hand. And you can almost immediately sense the the protest in the hearts of some that would be in that room. That's the cruelest thing that I've ever heard a rabbi or a teacher say to a crippled man, have him stand up in front of everyone and tell him to stretch out his hand. If he could have stretched out his hand, he would have stretched out his hand years ago. The man himself could have protested and said, here you are, you're making fun of me and my deformity, you have me stand up in front of the whole group, and you ask me to do something that is impossible for me to do. And he could have made all kinds of excuses for how long he's been in this condition, and then I was raised in this kind of a home, and, I, and there was this, and I had people, and they made fun of me when I was growing up, and this, and these are the deformities. And deformities take a lot of different forms, not just physical. They're mental. They're emotional. There's a lot of stuff that happens that we're born with from Adam and Eve, then attach themselves to us in life. But the interesting thing is, is he doesn't protest. Jesus gave the command, and you could hear a pin drop in the synagogue. Because the issue was, was he going to obey it or wasn't he? That's, all, that's only two things he was going to do. And when he took the step, the step to obey the commandment, he discovered the power to obey the commandment. And that is true of every single promise of God in this Bible. He never gives us a commandment with the idea that it is going to show us up, it's going to make fun of us, it's going to make fools of us. He knows that when we take the step to obey, that he will couple his power with that in order to give us the ability to obey that commandment. And that's an important thing to understand about God. So if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're looking at the attractiveness of the godly life and, and the attractiveness of the life that God is producing in, say, a friend or in a family member or in a, a co-worker or a student, and you'd like that to happen in your life, but you don't you think it can't happen because you're not strong enough to pull it off. That's not what you're seeing in your husband. That's not what you're seeing in your wife. That's not what you're seeing in your relative or in your son or your daughter or your coworker or your friend. You're not seeing personal strength that has changed them and transformed their life. You're seeing the power of God in their lives and what he's doing in them he will do in you. And he won't break a sweat doing it. He knows that everyone he saves, that he has saved a project, but he likes projects, and he will enjoy making a project of you. So a godly life is possible.
contrary to the teaching of the false teachers. Now, this is very significant to have that as kind of just in our thinking. I remember, oh, it has to be like 23, 24, 25 years ago when we were uh, downtown and the church was located there, and a man came in uh, to talk with me for counseling, and he sat down opposite my desk and he said, he said, this just doesn't work for me, Christianity. He said, I, he said, I, I can't obey any of these commandments. It's just not working for me. And I said to him, well, I took him to this passage. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, I say, you're telling me that as a Christian, you can't live this life. And the Bible is telling me that God gives us everything that's necessary to live a godly life. So you're forcing me to call one of the two of you a liar and believe the one and not believe the other. And I really don't have any choice but to believe in God and that you're mistaken. So uh, I was a little more direct in my counseling in those days um, on things. But a lie had set itself up in his heart. And we don't even, that was going to be taken advantage of by false teachers. And we don't even need false teachers. We got a liar inside of us called the old nature. I have a false prophet who lives inside of me called my sin nature, my old man. I have a false teacher that lives inside of me. And if we ever allow ourselves to believe that he has not supplied us with everything that's necessary for godly living, then we're just going to be picked off by false teachers who come along and say, this is impossible. You can't live a Christ-like life. You're going to have to just learn to live way below what is laid out in this book. And I love to tell you the fact of the matter is that that man... He was a young man in those days. He's not a young man anymore. But he lives in this very community, and he has a very strong, dynamic relationship and witness for the Lord, not because of my counseling, but because he did not believe the lie that was trying to attach to him. So a godly life is possible. Contrary to the teaching of the false teachers, we say, great, but what does a godly life look like? Well, in verse 3, we have the greatest example of holiness and holy living in Jesus himself. You notice that Peter put it this way. He said, who called us by glory and virtue. The glory and virtue that he's talking about here is not our glory or our virtue. He's talking about Jesus' glory and his virtue. And what Peter is saying is that Jesus attracts people who are slaves of sin and slaves of their own selfishness because of the beauty of his life, the moral purity of his life, the holiness of his life. In the words of Peter here, the splendor of his moral excellence and his goodness. And as we become exposed to Jesus, his teaching, his living, his speaking, what he says, what he doesn't say, what he does, what he doesn't do, what, how he, his attitude toward people, his attitude toward life. And as we get exposed to that, it's so beautiful to us that we have a longing 
to be like that and to share that kind of life. And what made Jesus attractive to us when we finally grew tired of our sin and our selfishness was his holiness. And one definite, you've got it, holiness means to be set apart, set apart for the purposes of God. But it also means different. We came to look at the whole horizon of mankind. Fallenness, 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 fallenness. Three feet away from us, fallenness. 10,000 miles away from us, fallenness. Anywhere in history, you want to go back 1,000 years. You want to go back uh, 5,000 years. You want to go back three years. All there is is fallenness in human history. From the garden, Adam and Eve... And then here is this one we come and we see. Here is a man in human history that is different from everything else and every other life that's been lived. And Jesus is the definition of holiness. And I say it with some regularity, but it really bears repeating because so many people have goofy ideas about holiness. I dare say if if you took a yellow pad and you went to the mall and you ask 200 people at random their definition of holiness, what comes into their mind when they think of holiness, and you were to write them down, I I doubt that one in a hundred would say Jesus. The life of Jesus is the definition of holiness. So you get the idea of how widely and freely people are and incorrectly defining holiness. Holiness is defined by Jesus himself. No holier life has ever been lived in the fallenness of this world than the life that Jesus lived. His saying, his doing, his attitudes, his perspective, he is the living, practical definition of holiness. So, and he supplies us with that. So I like book learning. I learn a lot from books. I like definitions from Webster's Dictionary. I like definitions from Vine's Dictionary of the New Testament Greek. I like to learn all of those things. But one of the things that I need is a saved, fallen person in this world in terms of holiness is, yes, I appreciate the definitions, but I got to know what it looks like. I'm also a visual learner. I need to know what does holiness look like in that conversation, in this situation, in this environment. And Jesus supplies it to us. And we put every definition of holiness to the test of his life. And if somebody comes to us with a definition of holiness, and we look at it, and it does not match the description of Jesus as we see him in the Gospels, then we know we are not dealing with a legitimate definition of holiness. It is a waste of our time, and we just jettison it. But if we look at it and say, that definition of holiness matches Jesus and what we know about him from the Gospels, then that's a true definition of holiness, and we hold on to it as something that's legitimate. It is Jesus' holiness, the beauty of his character, the beauty of his life that drew us to him, and just being in awe of, of the beauty of his life, and then that desire to become more and more like him. That's what attracted us to him, his virtue and 
also by His glory. Now, notice too in verse 3 that we have the highest motivation for holy living. And Peter put it this way, through the knowledge of Him, speaking of Jesus. The word knowledge there in the original language, the Greek, it refers to a knowledge that comes by experience. So again, we see this continually, but it's always worth repeating. There is knowledge that we have in our life that is intuitive. It's built into us by God. There is knowledge that we gain by reading and by learning in that way. And then there is a knowledge that comes into our life by experience. And that's the knowledge that he's talking about here, a knowledge that comes by experience. In other words, what he's saying is the closer we grow in our relationship with Jesus, the holier our lives will become for the simple reason that that's the influence that he will have upon us. I remember one of my, I was a third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade teacher, they had parent-teacher meetings, you know, which was like, was a dreadful day for my twin brother and I. And uh, so my mom went to that, and she came back from that um, meeting, and she said, the teacher said that uh, you two boys are followers, and, um, and you have to be very careful of the peers that you choose, or you're going to get into trouble. Well, we didn't really need any help in getting into trouble. I didn't agree that we were followers, um, uh, at least in, in that respect. But there are people in life where we look and if we are influenced by who we associate with and who we make the most important person in our life. That's, that's going to happen. And that kind of a relationship with Jesus, he's never going to drag us down into some kind of unholy uh, living or anything like that. The better we get to know him, the more we'll, we will become like him. He is always that kind of an influence in our lives toward holiness. Someone has said, it takes a passion to conquer a passion. Talking about sin. It takes a love for God that is greater than a love for sin in conquering sin. And God will give us that kind of love for him. It is not enough to hate sin more, but to love Jesus more. And that's the truth about it. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. And this is the key to holy living. And that key is growing in my own personal relationship with Jesus as opposed to what these false teachers were saying, and that is explain all of this stuff away and the need for holiness and just settle into kind of a grimy, uh, you know, existence until you get into heaven. But the single greatest safeguard a person can have in the face of temptation to unholy living is a current living personal relationship with Jesus, but it has to be a relationship with Jesus that means more to us than any sin that the world wants to use to tempt us away from that relationship. And developing that kind of a relationship with Jesus provides us with the highest motivation for holy living. And we deepen in our relationship with the Lord as we read his word and, and fellowship with him, want to become like him, prayer, just talking with God, 
practicing his presence, just walking and talking with him along life's narrow way as the old uh, hymn goes. And it's just enjoying that relationship in, in our lives. Sometimes a person will hit a great temptation uh, in their life toward unholiness, and maybe it's begun to divide a marriage, or uh, it's begun to pull a person in bad directions in life. And so the person will make an appointment to come and maybe see one of the pastors for a counseling. And so often the idea is, okay, I'll take this, this problem that I'm having, this temptation toward unholiness, and he's going to give me uh, two verses and tell uh, me to call him in the morning. So what we go to is this appointment with the idea that somehow this pastor is going to provide me with some biblical principles related to the problem that I'm facing. Now, the pastor should supply biblical instruction for how to handle temptation toward unholy living and very specific instruction depending on what the particular unholiness is. But that pastor can give me all the verses that he wants and he can give me all of the biblical principles that he wants. But if my relationship with God does not mean more to me than what I'm being tempted by, then I will never incorporate those principles or that teaching. And so the idea is is that the relationship is everything in holy living. The relationship is everything in, in, in living a holy life. Where we Look, and they used to have a saying, I don't, they don't, I don't hear it said too much anymore. Maybe it is being said, but I'm not in those, in those circles where they say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And that's the truth about it. it is, this is a call to relationship. And so often a temptation will come into our life or a difficulty that will come into our life, a marriage or whatever it might be, a great storm of spiritual warfare. And as that hits our life, we think it's going to be this thing or that thing that, we can, that will solve the situation for us when the great need in the, in the face of what it is that we're facing is we need to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus than we ever have before. The whole thing has been allowed because it forces us deeper. You get these trees that uh, go very, very deep into the ground with their roots. And why do they do that? Because great storms have uh, beat upon that tree. And as those storms hit that tree, that tree knows instinctively within itself that it needs to go deeper because the next storm may be even greater. The same thing happens with us in our Christian life, is that when these things hit, we realize, all right, the relationship that I had with Jesus that has gotten me through this far in my Christian life, that relationship is not deep enough for what I'm facing right now. I'm going to need to go deeper still in that relationship. It's all about the relationship. And And so it is through the knowledge of him that we have that highest motivation for living a holy life. 
All of these things are intended to take us deeper into the Lord. The deeper we go in the Lord, the more we become like Him, the more we become like Him, then the holiness issue is taken care of. And that's the way that God works. So it's just like you got single A, double A, triple A, major leagues in baseball. Sometimes we get saved and we just want to get lost in single A. All right, I'm on my way to heaven and I just, you know, don't, I still want to play baseball and do good enough there, but I don't want to really move any further. And God allows certain things to happen. Pretty soon the character is there, the skill, the ability, the everything. And next thing we are, we're in double A. And then he allows the next big thing to happen. And we've got to go deeper yet in our relationship with the Lord. Wonderfully so. And then pretty soon we've got a triple A relationship. And we can be thrown into this environment and that an environment and be successful environments we could have never been successful in before. And then ultimately the major leagues. It all comes back to the relationship. That is the highest motivation. And then finally you notice in verse 4, we have the practical instruction for how to achieve a holy life. Peter puts it this way, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In other words, as we simply obey the commandments of God, we will then enjoy the promises that are attached to every commandment. And there is a promise attached to every commandment. It is estimated that there are 30,000 promises in the Bible. Imagine having a little promise box on your dining room table with 30,000 of them you'd have to add onto the house. 30,000 promises in the Bible toward God's people. John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, he said, the pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them. And that's the truth. God's promises are facts. They are sure things. Paul wrote this in that regard for 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. God will be faithful to keep every promise he has made to us. Now, simple obedience to God's word or his promises will have two fabulous effects upon our life. First of all, Peter said, we become partakers of the divine nature. So again, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and he brings a new nature into our life. People, sometimes you become a Christian, the change is so dramatic, it should always be dramatic. People say, what happened to you? I'm under new management. I used to be under the management of sin and selfishness and the big I, me, my, and now I'm under the management of the Holy Spirit. And how is the fact of, that we are under new management, that we have a new nature, how is that revealed to family and to friends and to the world around us? How do we partner with the Holy Spirit to become more like Christ? 
by obeying God's word and thus living the life that results from that. The promises associated with God's commandments, the promises that lead us into the very life that Christ lived during his incarnation. It doesn't mean that we're going to be divine or we're going to be God, but it leads us into the beauty of a life that we long for as we read about his life in the scriptures. The second thing that it does is it helps us to stay escaped from the corruption that is in the world through lust. And you notice that because we are Christians and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are, have already, past tense, escaped from the corruption that is in the world through lust. And it's just simple obedience to God's Word that keeps me escaped. Now, the word lust, we think of it in this culture almost exclusively in terms of sexual lust, but that's not how it's used in the Bible. It includes sexual lust, but it includes any strong desire towards sin. That's what lust is. And so you have this sexual, not just sexual lust, but again, any desire for all sin and to live for sin results in a corrupted life. It causes us to live a life that corrupts God's intent for our lives, and, and it also results in a life of moral ruin and moral decay. But because we have this divine nature, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we don't have to live the corrupted life of moral ruin and decay that we see all around us. And it's not because uh, we, here we are now, we're Christians, and now we're immune to sin. <laughs> Never to be tempted again, and sin has no pull on me. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it isn't because we're better than everybody else in the world. It just means that we have submitted ourselves to God, believed in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has come into our life. So now we've experienced a new kind of life, and we realize that was rottenness that we were involved in previously compared to what I'm in the middle of now. So that divine nature. But when we become Christians, we don't cease to, you know, to be tempted. We're not immune to sin. We're going to be tempted by sin until we enter into heaven but now, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have kind of an upward lifting power in our lives that's greater than the downward pull of sin. It's kind of like going to the airport. Anytime you're on a plane, you should think about this. So you take someone to the airport, and you see them taking off and landing and all, mostly on the taking off for this illustration. But you see that jet take off with all those passengers on the plane. Gravity has not ceased to exist Gravity is still making its pull downward. But the reason that plane is able to get off of the ground and fly is a greater power. It, 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 it has a greater power than the pull of gravity uh, within it. And that's what's happened with the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. There's still the downward pull of the fallenness of this world, but now the Holy Spirit gives us a power to be able to resist that and arise to a life that we would never otherwise uh, know. And, and so we praise the Lord for the reality of that, and because of that power, we don't have to live a life that's like the corrupted world or like the one that we used to live. And so praise the Lord, we don't have to settle down as these false teachers were saying, 
into a, a life of a Christian life so-called of just being dominated by sin and addiction and by selfishness. Peter comes in and says, all right, been there, done that. We don't need to fall back. Christ didn't die on the cross, buried, rise again on the third day. You can't re- we can't represent that in the world, that great power, that great truth, that great God, by living the way these false teachers were calling on the Christians to live. That gets demonstrated in a holy life. I love the word holiness. I love it. And maybe it's because I lived an unholy life so much before I came to know the Lord. And you know, you don't have to live a a grotesquely terrible life to have an appreciation for an unholy life. You can have a tender conscience that is broken and destroyed by even sin that other people wouldn't even consider to be sin. But you live that life out there, the corruption of the world, and then there comes a point in time and you say, I I don't like who I am. I don't like what this sin is making me into. I don't like what my selfishness is making me into. Is there some place else I can park my life and have it be something different than all of the lives that I see around me? And Jesus is that life. When I got saved so many years ago, my greatest concern was not heaven and hell. I did not get saved to escape hell. I'm thankful for it now. But my need was more acute than that. My need was more immediate than that. I needed someone to save me from me. Someone greater than me and the power that sin had in my life and the power that selfishness had in my life and what it was making me into, I couldn't stand. Even as a young person, I recognized where this goes and I don't like the person it's making me into. And when a person hits that place, people say, you know, you can't use word like justification and sanctification and holiness in the culture because people don't know those any words anymore and, and they don't mean anything to them anymore. Listen, holiness means a lot to you. When we finally hit a place where we say, I don't like what my sin and my selfishness has made me into And I want to know if there's an alternative to this. And then holiness becomes good news. And it becomes even greater news when we come to realize that it looks just like Jesus. Because who can find a fault with Jesus? And all of it's there and it's available to us. And no false teacher can ever improve upon these truths that Peter has brought out in just verses 3 and 4. We have all the power needed in order to live a godly life. We have the greatest example of holiness and holy living, Jesus himself. We possess the highest motivation possible for living a holy life because it's where we come to know Jesus better. And we have the practical instruction of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit to free us from the corruption that is in the world through lust. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, all of this is available to you just for the asking. 
If you look at your life and say, I need the forgiveness of sins. I want to be a different person than I am. The addiction within our culture to sin, it's criminal. It's criminal what commercial Babylon is getting away with to make money off of the vulnerabilities of people. I hate it. I spit on it. I hate it so much. And it targets people younger and younger and younger and younger until there's virtually no innocent and innocence and who's getting even an innocent childhood in their life to one day look back on fondly. Everything is being robbed of us in the name of money and mammon. But the good news is, is that God knows that the world is the mess that it is. And whatever we have been... He will make us into a completely new creation when we come to him. Something altogether new, entering into the life that he has for us. And it's all there just for the asking and just for the receiving this morning. And there are going to be the pastors up in front and others up in front who would love to pray with you to receive God's forgiveness have that great miracle occur in your life, the Holy Spirit come into your life this morning, and all of this take off for you today to find out what does God have planned for you. Not just in the life to come, as wonderful as that is, but this afternoon and tomorrow and next week and the rest of your life. And it's all there just sitting, waiting for you. And God will love to do it, but he'll never force himself on you. You have to do the inviting. And these men and women afterward would love to pray with you to make that invitation. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we ask that you look at our hearts right now We don't want to say anything that doesn't represent our hearts to you. And we just thank you with great sincerity for the privilege of holiness and the privilege of living a holy life. We thank you that Christ is our example, but that you didn't just put him in front of us to hopelessly long for the life that he lived to be a part of our life. But you gave us your Holy Spirit and we have experienced the will, the want to that he's brought into our lives and the power to live a life that looks like Christ. And we know we're not perfect, but we know we're not what we were and you've brought us a long way and we thank you for that today. And Lord, we long for holiness in our life more now than ever in our Christian life. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being able to live the beauty of this Christian life. And thank you, Lord, for all of the work that you have put into our lives as Christians to make that relationship mean more to us than anything else in life, and with it, Lord, the ability to say no to all of these other things, because that's what we treasure most. Thank you not only for saving us, 
but we thank you also for the relationship that has come with that salvation. And we thank you that it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. You're a wonderful God. You have thought of everything. And we give you praise for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.